0: Naomi, thank you so much for reading that chapter to us. You might like to have it in front of you, Nehemiah chapter 2, if you've got access to a church Bible. Can I have my slide, please? There it is. Attention to detail. Did anyone notice the grammar mistake in the, on the screen? Jacka Well, where did that come from? <laughs> Attention to detail, eh? Anyway. Oh, excuse me. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with time that is given us. Well, I think many of us could echo Frodo's sentiments for our own time, I'm sure. Coronavirus, Afghanistan, looming climate disaster... I wish it need not have happened in my time. And so do all of us who live to see such times. But that is not for us to decide. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given us. And Nehemiah could have wished it need not have happened in his time. His people who had survived the exile and were back in the province were in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates burned with fire. And when he heard how things were in Jerusalem, he sat down and wept. We read that some, for some days he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. A broken wall and a broken heart, as we heard last week. I wish it need not have happened in my time. And so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And Nehemiah had decided. It was the month of Kislev, the third month in the Jewish calendar, roughly November and December, when he'd first received this heart-rending news, of how things were in Jerusalem. But now it was the month of Nisan. So four months later on, roughly March, April, our time, four months had passed. Four months of careful, prayerful planning, which becomes apparent in these first 10 verses of Nehemiah 2. We have a prayerful plan. So with Nehemiah, prayer and planning go hand in hand. But prayer was where the planning started. And I make no apologies for echoing some of the things that Ellen said last week. So let's take a look at his prayer first. In chapter one, we read that for some days after receiving the news of Jerusalem's state, he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He prayed, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. And again, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. So others were joining him in his praying. And on a certain day, having started his plan with prayer, he enters the king's presence and the rest of his plan becomes apparent. Now, I can't prove it, but I suspect that from what follows uh, and Nehemiah's attention to detail, incredible attention to detail, that Nehemiah chose this day to let his smiley face fall, to let his happy face slip. Why this day? Well, it's a question I think it's worth asking. As a butler, he would have been in charge of the wine cellar. So he would, he would have had daily access to the king. Uh, his responsibility was to taste the king's wine in case it was poisoned. He was the first in line to feel the effects of that. So if he had daily access to the king, why this day? Why this day four months on? Maybe the king was in a good mood. The mention of the queen may indicate that it was a private occasion. Apparently, it wasn't customary for the queen to appear at a formal banquet. So maybe Nehemiah was counting on the presence of, the, of the, the queen to influence in some way the king's mood and decision. We can only speculate. But for whatever reason, this day appeared to be the right day. In fact, whatever day he chose, it was going to be a risky day. It was risky to be sad in the king's presence because that was not allowed. When you go to work, you leave your personal issues at the door, was the HR policy in force in the court. It was risky to be asking the king to revise his policy against Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter four, we read that the king had commanded the building of the wall to stop because it was placing the royal interests at risk. And it was risky to be asking something that was frankly way above his pay grade. I mean, who did he think he was? He was the butler. And he's about to ask for all sorts of things to contribute to the project that he has been praying and planning about. So it was a genuinely risky moment for Nehemiah. So it's no surprise that when the king asks him, why does your face look so sad, That that Nehemiah responds, I was very much afraid. This is genuine peril. Genuine peril in what he was about to ask. But he had prayed and planned for this moment. And he answers in a very personal way. He doesn't mention Jerusalem. Instead, in a culture where one's family burial place would be deserving of great respect, he appeals to his sadness about his ancestors. The king asks, what is it you want? And uh, one of the things I love about this, uh, this reading is the difference in the way the king and Nehemiah speaks. I don't know if you've noticed that. The king speaks with very kind of direct phrases and questions. Nehemiah, on the other hand... He doesn't have the king's authority. He's very respectful, and he speaks with the kind of verbosity that you might expect in a court environment. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Again, no reference to Jerusalem in his response. Two more short statements from the king. How long will your journey take? When will you get back? And now we really do see the eye for detail that Nehemiah had. Because vagueness at this point would have shown up the project as just a pipe dream or maybe an emotional reaction. But Nehemiah had thought it through in detail. He would need letters of authorization. He would need safe conduct to Judah. He would need resources, not just for the wall, but for his own residence, because he was going to need to be there for a period of time. It wasn't just going to be a weekend away. There's a pseudo-spirituality that looks down on planning as if it's a a worldly approach to life, unbecoming of the the spirit-filled Christian. But prayer and planning go hand in hand. God is a planner, as a favourite verse among Christians makes apparent. I know the plans... I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God is a planner. And his servants are planners too, like Paul, who, for example, wrote to the Corinthians and said, do I make my plans in a worldly manner? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. He didn't make casual, prayerless plans. And neither did Nehemiah. And verse 8, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Nehemiah had sought God at the start, and he now acknowledged him at the end. And so with his military escort, verse 9, signalling the royal seal of approval, on his visit, Nehemiah sets off for Jerusalem. And once in Jerusalem, Nehemiah's prayerful plan took on a more concrete shape as he carried out a shrewd survey. So after three days, three days to get his bearings, three days to let the excitement maybe just bubble down a bit, three three days possibly to wait for the right conditions, a nice, clear, moonlit night. After three days, he sets off with a small, carefully chosen group of trusted individuals to inspect the damage to the walls. He hasn't rushed into action. He's not going to rush into talk. He wants to establish the extent of the problem before he starts getting people involved in it. And I think there's a lesson for us here. As we start to come out of lockdown and look to rebuild as a church, as a leadership team, we are conscious of many gaps. Um, Not gaps in a wall, obviously, but gaps in some of the ministries that we believe in. And Ellen mentioned last week some of the gaps that um, you may be able to fill. There'll be an email coming out uh, next week inviting you to consider whether you might help plug some of these gaps. And we hope there will be an enthusiastic response. But take a leaf out of Nehemiah's book. Pray first. Don't rush to volunteer, find out exactly what's needed. Talk about it with some trusted friends, and then, if it seems right, then go for it. Go for it enthusiastically, go for it wholeheartedly. So Nehemiah makes this counterclockwise tour of the walls. Now, we can't identify precisely all of the points he mentions, but we have a good idea. He sets off on his horse, coming down the west side of the wall. Later on, he's forced to dismount, proceed on foot along the ridge around the Kidron Valley to the east. And it refers to an obstruction, doesn't it, in the reading? And that may have been the huge spill of rubble from Nehemiah's destruction of the city in the sixth century BC, rediscovered by excavations in the 1960s. Why does he do this at night? Well, partly, I'm sure, because two influential officials who will prove to be a thorn in his side, Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, are unhappy that someone has come to promote the interests, the welfare of the Israelites. That's part of the reason. But I think partly too, because sometimes when you show your hand too early, opposition to a proposal arises before the proposal has even been made or articulated verse 16 makes clear he says nothing yet to the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work and i wonder how often an idea fails to take off because its opponents criticize it even before they've heard it properly Nehemiah would have lost support if he'd been exposed if if He had been exposed to his half, if his ideas had been exposed in their half formed shape um, to all and sundry. The philosopher um, Schopenhauer wrote All truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as being self evident. And it seems to me that Nehemiah takes the sting out of steps one and two. He won't reveal his intentions until he has established the self-evident facts for himself. And he can communicate his plan in his way and with his timing. But first he has to do his research. And this is not, as some would suggest, walking by sight rather than by faith. The faith is needed once the facts are known. Faith means knowing what the problems really are, we look to God for help. Nehemiah needs to know the facts. And so he conducts his survey of the walls, and then, and only then, is he ready to issue his call to action. And in this, just as much as his prayerful planning and shrewd surveying, Nehemiah shows his attention to detail. It is, one more bit of alliteration, a masterful mobilization. (laughs) Firstly, notice how he begins. He states the problem in factual terms. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. You see, he says, you can verify for yourselves. He appeals to what the people know. And if anyone challenges him, what do you know about the state of, your, of, of, of our walls? You've only been here three days. What he can say? I've seen it for myself. I have seen what you have seen. These are the facts. And then he calls them to action and he includes himself. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. He includes himself, they're in it together, and he's clear about the task he's inviting them to. Thirdly, he gives a clear, compelling reason for action. He doesn't use the most obvious reason, which is the insecurity of the city, uh, of their position, because his opponents could have said, look, we've been living with this insecurity for years. What's new? Instead, he appeals to their sense of ongoing disgrace. And fourthly, he testifies to the help he has received from God and from the king. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Why do I call it masterful mobilization? You can probably guess. It's because they said, let's start rebuilding. Let's start rebuilding. How is any of this relevant to us today? How can a story from 2,500 years ago and from 3,000 miles away be meaningful to us? We shared today um, the exciting news of Ellen's acceptance uh, of a call to serve as team leader here at CBC. And like Nehemiah, Ellen has felt a prompting from God to serve God's purposes in her time. We could say that she has had her own experience of a broken wall and a broken heart, which was the subject of last Sunday's message. She's told her story elsewhere of how she discerned that call, and it's not mine to tell. But she prayed it through and thought through the implications of that call, and with a degree of trepidation, was willing to have it tested at the church meeting on Wednesday, just as Nehemiah had his purpose tested in the presence of the king. And like Nehemiah, she has been given the green light to serve God's, purpose, serve God's people in a new capacity. And we as a church have recognised that call. Now it seems to me that we need to do what Nehemiah did next. So this isn't the time to leap into action on some new project. This is a time to get our bearings let the excitement settle down, so to speak, to carefully, prayerfully take stock. It doesn't mean to say we do nothing, of course. I've already mentioned we're conscious of some gaps in existing ministries that we want to fill. But it is to say that there's no rush, because God is in no rush. Faith means knowing what the problems really are. We look to God for help. So like like Nehemiah, we take stock. I was reminded on Friday of how people pressed Jesus to stay with them and keep performing miracles. And he responded to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. Jesus' priorities were set by a strong sense of need and purpose. And ours must, must be too. But it occurs to me also that the lessons from Nehemiah 2 are not just for us as a church, but may be poignant to some of us as individuals this morning. Perhaps you have your own equivalent of a broken wall and a broken heart. Something that really weighs you down and causes you to weep. You see a need somewhere and it's a burden and you can't shake it. And you want to know, what is God calling you to next? Maybe you are still, so to speak, in chapter 1. You're praying about, you're thinking about how you could respond and what you would need. You're aware of the risks involved and are nervous about the next step. Poised for a chapter 2 experience. Perhaps you're even at the start of chapter two. You've been given a green light. But now you're being tested and probed to prove that this is something you really care about, not just the latest fad. Or maybe you've been given the green light and you're keen to get going. But what you need first is to conduct a careful examination of what the issues really are. You know some of them, of course, because that's what brought you to this point. But you need to drill down into the detail and get the facts straight. Or maybe it's a time to mobilize people around the cause that God has laid on your heart. Maybe it's time to present the facts to others, to give that call to action with a clear, compelling reason, a testimony To how God has brought you to this point, directly and through others. Or maybe, lastly, and I finish with this maybe you aren't that person with the burden, but you are that person being called to action. Because Jerusalem's walls won't be built by fine words, it will be built by ordinary people, not heroes. Just ordinary people. People who aren't bothered that it wasn't their idea to build the wall. People who aren't bothered that they, that they won't get the credit for the idea in the first place. People who are willing to get their hands dirty. To get stuck into the work. Instead of offering a commentary from the side. The people who say, let's start rebuilding. Amen.